0: To welcome you here this morning to talk about this report, um, Professionalizing Whitehall or Professionalizing How the Civil Service Works. And let me say while we care about all our work, all our reports, this is one we really, really care about. It is uh, about um, bringing professional skills right across Whitehall. It's an agenda that we have been uh, arguing for for some time and enthusiastically embracing those who've conceived and driven it forwards. Uh, It's an agenda as well that we uh, acknowledge fully has had some success. What we're setting out to do in this report is describe the state of play, describe where the successes have been, where we feel it's got stuck, and what might uh, be done now to take it further forwards. And I'm delighted to have here on the panel uh, Sir Amius Morse, head of the National Audit Office, who is going to be responding to Julian McRae, Deputy Director of the Institute who's one of the authors with Jen Gold. And with that, can I also thank Oracle, who've been partners on this and other work um, about reforms of the civil service, and we're delighted to have um, worked with them on that, on on this and and, and, and a lot of other uh, extremely good uh, reports on reform. Julian's going to kick off with his... uh, presentation of our key findings and thoughts on those. we will respond and then we're going to come to questions. And I think there are quite a lot from the discussion outside. And so with that, Julian. Great.
1: Thank you, Brahman. Right, and good morning. OK, um, launching a report. Uh, as Brahman says, we've been working with Oracle and Nick Jackson, uh, particularly, who uh, has been himself wrestled with many of these issues in his time inside Whitehall. Um, Let me start by giving you a quick summary of the top-level argument, so you don't necessarily have to listen to everything I say. Um, First of all, this is about a vital set of reforms. Um, We face a context of um, the implementation of Brexit coming up. We're going to have to re-envisage how we do a lot of governing in this country. We also have large amounts of pressures on our public services, something we've been talking about in our performance tracker um, series. Um, being able to tackle those reforms with a skilled and capable Whitehall uh, is really going to be important for the, for the country. Um, this is a sort of stock take of where a set of reforms have got to. Uh, around 2013, give or take, a series of reforms to improve different aspects of Whitehall kicked off. They've got very similar characteristics, and actually they've coalesced around an agenda. Um, some of them are called functional reforms, some are called professions, as in policy making. We've chosen to use the word specialisms. This is really about specialist areas of expertise um, that are necessary for departments to produce, to, to deliver the policies and programs um, that ministers want. So what those set of reforms, how do they come together and how are they changing where Whitehall is? That's the stock take we're producing. Um, We'll come to the inside that, we'll be saying there's lots of tangible progress but actually there's still a need to go further and a need to accelerate actually if we're going to hit anything like the timelines that we face on public services and Brexit and we've got a series of recommendations that we think taken in the round would help accelerate and embed these reforms. Uh, within how Whitehall works. Okay, That's the top level summary um, of what we're saying this morning. Uh, let me take you through a little bit of the detail. First of all, I just want to be really clear about the focus of this report. Okay. Um, if we look at the civil service workforce, uh, which part of that workforce are we talking about? Um, the government produces figures on this. Um, operational delivery is the biggest part of the civil service, over half of it. Um, and uh, a big mass of people, usually working inside departments like HMRC or DWP, delivering services to the public. There's a set of departmental specialisms, uh, sets areas of expertise like tax uh, or like vets, which are very, very confined to particular departments, uh, HMRC or DEFRA in those cases. What we're talking about this morning is the cross-departmental specialisms. These are areas of expertise that are common across all the Whitehall departments um, and are necessary for them to actually deliver policies and programs of the government. Um, If I pull out about 83,000 people working inside um, those specialisms according to uh, government figures. So if I just pull those out uh, and sort of have a look at well, what are the actual People, the things that we're talking about in here. First off, policy. About 17,800 people, according to government figures, work inside policy. People who are going to have to come up with workable solutions to the issues we face. Finance. Um, those solutions really need to be embedded in an understanding of the effective use of resources uh, as we go forward. Digital. A lot of those solutions will involve the use of new technology. Can we get that right? Can we employ those technologies properly? Commercial. We're going to have to involve others outside of government. Can we get the best deals? Can we make sure that they're actually delivered? Um, we've got legal. Um, we're changing the basis, the legal basis for a lot of how government operates in the UK. Uh, we're going to need very serious legal advice as we go through. Um, communications, uh, not just communications with the public, which is vital in any set of reforms, but with your own workforce, your own workforces, actually, in the context of the public sector. Um, Project delivery. A lot of this change that we're going to face will be organized in a project way. Can we actually, do we have the skills and capabilities to deliver those projects? And finally, human resources. This is all actually about people doing their jobs better and properly. Do we have the systems in place to make sure we can bring in those people, we can manage them properly, we can develop them properly? Okay, so eight core areas that we looked at in this report, each of which has its own reform processes going on inside it. Right, what's the issue? I mean, those things are um, fairly standard. Most organizations, except for policy, it's rather specific to Whitehall, most organizations will have those functions inside them. Um, There's a recognized problem here. There's a quote I really like. Um, I'm gonna read it. The skills of the modern management accountant appear to be increasingly needed at the high levels of policy making and management. Somebody trained to evaluate policy options in financial terms, to compare costs and benefits arising from different uses of resources, and to apply quantitative techniques to the control of expenditure and the measurement of efficiency. So one of the areas I talked about, finance, a need for those skills to be at the heart of some of the decisions we're making. This could easily be coming from an IFG research report. It might be coming from me. That's uh, how Public Finance magazine, my dear friends there, conceive of me in one of their sketches. Um, Could be that, but it isn't. Could be Francis Maud, uh, the minister who really is responsible for setting up and driving a lot of the intellectual capital behind this uh, set of reform agendas that's been subsequently taken on by the civil service. Um, But it isn't actually Francis Maud. It is in fact this man. Um, Now, there are prizes for those who are muttering under their breath, Lord Fulton, of course. This quote is from the Fulton Committee Report, which was, came out in 1968. It will be 50 years old, half a century old next year. So this is a problem that's long, long been recognised. Okay, it's a problem that also has consequences. Um, we're really glad to have Amius here today. Um, you know, you just have to look through the catalogue of NAO reports. Um, universal Credit, um, large amounts of issues, particularly around digital, some program management there, issues there. Um, West Coast Main Line, how we commissioned, um, how we manage contracts, the Ministry of Justice electronic mon- uh, monitoring. Huge range of things we could talk about. The report touches briefly on that, but neither the problem nor the consequences are really what this report is about. Okay? Um, the issue we're looking at is the emerging solution the attempts and reform programs to actually resolve uh, the issues, to make sure that we've got expertise underlying things and we stop having NAO reports which highlight the fact that we just didn't get it right in some of these crucial areas. Okay, let me just talk a little bit about the nature of this solution because I think it's really important that people understand how what's going on now is different to many of the attempts over the last 50 years uh, to get to the heart of these issues. The first thing is the purpose of the solution. This is about supporting departments to deliver their own programs, okay? That seems relatively straightforward and simple. So what do we mean? If you think about departments, I've got Bayes comes first alphabetically as a department, followed by DCLG. Take them down, I can't list all 18 of our main departments, MOJ is the last one there on the list. Most of what goes on inside these functions, these areas of expertise, these specialisms, is actually about people working in the heart of those departments, providing support and services to their colleagues, interacting with them, line-managed within the departmental frame. Now, even with that model, there are still elements that are vital to be done on a cross-departmental basis. In the report, we call these the core development roles. Um, These are things like talent, how do you manage the talent that you're bringing up through your specialisms? Uh, at the very least, you need to have some coordination on this if you're not going to have departments poaching each other for their key staff. Um, but actually, there's a lot more that can and should be done across departmental basis to develop people. Ways of working. What are the basic standard ways we should be working? how do we actually go about doing contract management, our relationships with arms and bodies, all that sort of governance, how do we go about running projects? And assurance, how do we know that things are actually working right, and who makes sure those things are working right? Again, cross-departmental nature to all of those sort of things. Not a huge amount of roles, but there are a set of roles there that need to be done. Um, The second element that quite often occurs on a cross-departmental basis is actually we centralize some services. Um, So you might think about the Crown Commercial Service, which centralizes a load of procurement functions uh, across departments. So here, our specialist staff are not working in the departments, they're actually working in a separate entity outside. But the core relationship is the provision of services to those departments to support them operating. Now, I went through this in a little bit of detail, um, largely because quite often in the past, this has been conceived as a zero-sum game you know, if you try to centralize stuff, you're taking responsibility out of departments, putting it into the center, the departments lose, pendulum swings the other way, we take things back out of the center, departments start doing more things, the center loses. That is fundamentally the wrong way to think about this. This is entirely about how do you design your system to best support departments in delivery, and crucially, how do you make sure those core development roles are in place, and you've centralized the right things and you've got the right accountability for the things that are centralized and actually what's going on in departments you've got the right accountabilities for what's going on in departments okay so that's the the basis of what people are thinking about and doing in these reforms let's talk about a few of the aspects that have kind of come up and we think are important a lot of this comes from earlier institute research i won't touch on all of that because people will want to get away this morning Um, but lots of these things come out of our research and say there are reasons why we think these are important aspects. Leadership, a pretty obvious important aspect. The most basic thing, if you've got a problem that sustains itself for about 50 years, it would probably be useful to put someone in charge and make them clearly responsible for solving it. Um, We have, fortunately, pretty much got to that sort of situation. Across these, you may not be able to actually read the names there, but this is a chart that just shows the leaders of each of the core specialisms across the piece, we can now name all those leaders, they're all clearly responsible. Um, There's some areas in this where there's been a large amount of turnover at various points in project delivery around digital, uh, and some areas where things have stepped a little bit backwards in finance. Um, We've moved back to a part-time head of specialism when we used to have a full-time one. Um, But in general, the government has recognized need, civil service has recognized the need to have clear responsibilities across these areas. Um, The second thing I'd like to highlight around leadership is, look, there's a cross-departmental nature to this, and we've got this wrong many times in the past, and I think we're really starting to get it right now. You've got departments where most of the people inside these special are based, providing support there. You've got cross-departmental development roles and centralized services. We've developed now things like the Finance Leadership Group and uh, others. Most of these areas have a, a leadership group which is drawing in those central leaders that I had on the last slide into that group but also crucially bringing in the departmental leaders, typically DG level, into that group. Now we've done those sort of, you yeah, let's sit around the table and have a conversation many, many times before in Whitehall. Uh, the really fundamental difference here is we've started to give this leadership group purpose. Actually, this is the group that is defining the nature of the reform strategy. What is the operating model? What should we be centralizing? What should actually be in departments? And responsibility increasingly for the success of those reforms. Are these reforms working? Are we getting the right people into the right place? Are our centralized services actually working? Um, And that purpose for those leadership groups starts to transform them from areas where we talk to areas where we actually make progress in, uh, in changing. And again, in the report you'll see there's some variation in that uh, across the different uh, specialisms but generally that's in a fairly good state. Okay, something else we highlight, some of the areas where there's really been positive change around the talent management and how we develop people inside uh, the specialisms. So this is uh, a sort of, I don't know if you think about this, conceptualize this as the entry level to a specialism, uh, working way up, getting slightly narrower is obviously there's less jobs, um, up to the leadership of that specialism. How do we take people through that career. Um, first of all, on recruitment, uh, we have developed a series of fast streams um, across the specialists to bring in people skilled and able and prepared to be the next generation of leaders. Those fast streams largely in place now. The um, question is going to be, are they all managing to recruit and bring in um, the right number of really high skilled people? There's a little discussion of that in the report. Similarly, apprenticeships. Um, We have a new set of schemes pretty much across all the specialisms now, widening the diversity of people coming into the specialisms. And actually increasingly senior level recruitment being organised on a cross-departmental basis because it's quite often easier to find the best people if you're working across the piece and then able to manage their careers there. Um, Some caveats on that, we still probably haven't got right bringing in senior people, how do we help them acclimatise uh, to the nature of Whitehall and understand the culture that they're going to be operating in. Um, come back to that in a little while. Um, so, on recruitment, a lot of good things happening that still need to make progress, but they're there. Uh, on the development of people, big thing that's been happening academies have come up as a big issue, Finance Leadership Academy, various other ones. Um, Really embedding how do we develop uh, people within the specialism and start to give us a sense of how do we do things properly, how do we make things work. Um, Career pathways, this is a much newer concept. How do people, how are we saying people should navigate their career as they're moving up inside the civil service? Maybe starting out working in one area but actually we want you to take a little bit of movement to get a bit of wider experience so you can move on up at a later date. Uh, a real effort going into still early days of drawing up career pathways that can help people understand what they're doing and we can align with our promotion and performance assessment um, systems. Um, and those are important because of one other aspect getting to the top. Um, I've talked inside a specialism, how do you move up inside that? Actually, for people we want to actually be senior leaders at the top of the civil service quite often that involves not just experience of their own specialism but they may need to get experience elsewhere. they may need to go across for a short period and gain some experience, say in a policy role if we think that 's one of the important uh, aspects of senior leadership uh, and then coming back to their main specialism and then hopefully being able to move into the top leadership of the civil service more rounded breadth of experience now this element of the composition of the top leadership of the civil service is really important. Uh, A lot of our research, our early research, suggested that actually the key difference uh, in developing expertise and specialism in Whitehall is compared to the private sector is not that this is um, easy in the private sector and hard in the public sector, it's actually very difficult in any large complex organisation, you need people really focused on it. Uh, the difference is that the demand to say, we need really strong areas of expertise, really strong specialisms, is much, much weaker in Whitehall. It's usually based with an individual rather than based inside the organization its structures demanding this. Um, the composition of the top teams is not the only reason for that, but actually if you look at it and if you look in detail in the report, we go through it top teams very rarely have specialist roles inside them, inside Whitehall departments, in contrast to not just the private sector, but if you look at non-profit sectors, or you look at um, public corporations or the parts of the public sector. Uh, and that's almost certainly part of the issue uh, that's driving this. Um, the one I just wanted to highlight uh, is actually the Civil Service Board, technically the top executive group uh, in the Civil Service, Actually, it's a very interesting composition, Um, pretty much exclusively permanent secretaries. Um, Chris Wormold is their head of policy profession, sits on it, so policy is in some ways represented. And of course, course John Manzoni is permanent secretary at cabinet office, but also has responsibility collectively for various specialisms. But there is no specialist representation on the Civil Service Board, despite the fact that the Civil Service, uh, the cabinet secretary and head of the civil services priorities, are diversity, commercial and uh, digital, uh, where you might think if they were your priorities you might want the heads of those specialisms on your top team. Um, One final thing, money always matters in Whitehall, no matter what, matters everywhere. Funding for some of these things, uh, in some areas that's reasonably straightforward, in others it's very bespoke, almost beg, borrow, steal um, patterns. Uh, One thing we suggest that for those core development roles, which are actually quite small, these are relatively small amounts of money, certainly for government, Um, Core funding should be held by the civil service board and allocated properly out according to the priorities of the civil service board to make sure that there's core and stable funding for these aspects. Centralised services where you've got these services, service payment models are applicable and certainly useful uh, in driving incentives but we should probably have a couple of standardised models rather than reinventing them every time uh, we centralise something. Right, those were the, the aspects I wanted to pick out. There's a lot more in the report. Um, just to conclude, i just run through the top level how we group the recommendations. Integrating into decision making, uh, making sure um, that these specialisms are really making a difference to decision making. Some of that is about the top leadership teams and their composition. Some of it is about the specialisms themselves uh, being able to demonstrate why they're adding value to the decisions, why are making. There's some interesting Uh, examples in the report, Um, and uh, some of it is about what I hope when the Leadership Academy is launched, I think in the next month or two uh, for the civil service, there'll be a real emphasis on making sure all senior leaders understand how to run, manage and develop specialisms. Um, Getting to the top, I've talked a bit about this. How do you get people to the top out of specialisms through career pathways? How do we bring in people from outside and make sure at senior levels they can acclimatize to why to be successful there? Uh, bringing the reforms together, there's a lot of these reforms are actually quite coordinated now, and there's a lot of work being done under John Manzoni to make sure they come together. Um, some areas, though, that are crucial, like policy, is not really there. They're doing similar things, but the alignments are not necessarily in place. A little bit more work to bring those together would be great. Uh, and finally, I've talked about the stable funding. Uh, we think these are sort of a set of things. None of them are particularly revolutionary. Um, they're incremental on a set of reforms which are absolutely vital um, and I just finish with a thought, um, at some point um, there will, I will have a successor in about 50 years time, um, now that person is probably not born yet um, but hopefully we can prevent them having to come and give roughly the same presentation in 50 years time uh, if we get this sort of stuff right, thank you all very much.
0: Oh, you, you, can do, you can do either, uh, Julian. Thanks very much indeed. Um, as I said at the beginning, this is an agenda we really care about, and Julian has outlined where we think it has got to. Both the um, considerable progress that has been made in the areas where there's less, less progress. Amius uh, you can uh, sit or stand uh, as, it, as you like, involved, but we would really love to hear where you think okay. oh, this I'll has got to. to
2: but yeah, I don't know. I don't want to do fall is, off um, the uh, stage. I'd, I'd hit. You. Um, Okay, and thank you very much and and, and, and uh, I'm really going to respond, I hope, with some different perspectives anyway on, on, on this uh, report. Just for a second I'll take a chance to say I gather that on streaming the Audit, Audit Scotland is picking this up, so greetings to my friends north of the border. Um, some of you may know that's where I originate, so I'm allowing myself a little dip in that direction. Um, well obviously professionalising is a good idea and I'm very supportive of it and, and the NAO is very supportive of it and we're very supportive of what John Manzani is trying to do in driving up specialism and developing uh, specialism ac- across government. And I largely, and I agree with mo- the findings in the report, uh, there's been progress in talent management, I agree with that. Uh, some specialisms, the leadership uh, is better placed than in others. And there are problems uh, that tend to undermine progress, I- infrastructure, information, and so forth. I'll come back and say more. So we're largely, I largely agree with what the report uh, would, would, uh, says. I think most of the recommendations, rather than saying, do I agree with them in detail, or do we agree with them in detail, let me say we recognise that what they're trying to see- seeking to achieve, which is to give standing and influence to professional judgement. So, I'm very much in support of what the report says, but I do think we need to recognize a reality, and uh, I'm now going to give a bit of a reality check on on the state of affairs out there. Um, First thing to to say is, this is inherently a gradual improvement process. There's nothing wrong with that, that's not a criticism, it's just a fact. This is not instantly going to have experts springing up in every part of government, and I think the first thing I would say is, if you don't base your decisions on these skills, they won't really develop. If government is not going to make its decisions based on expert advice and management information and all of that lot, and it's going to continue to make it on a more diverse basis, then obviously you won't have a demand pull. You can't be surprised if people aren't actually... If these professional skills aren't at the table, if they're not being used, people don't really want to hear what the expert judgment is, and they're planning on making decisions otherwise, then strangely enough, they won't have them at the table. They won't want to have the embarrassment of listening to the expert advice and then ignoring it. So, quite frankly, there's a question, are you going to use these skills? And And you have to walk the talk. If there's not an intention of walking the talk, and people aren't going to face up to that, that government needs to do things differently in order to use these skills, then it's going to be difficult to pull this through in the way that it ought, and in the way that I know John and others want it to, to be pulled through. So, I think that's important to say, and I, and I say it particularly because of the challenging context. And we're not... You know, what is happening at the moment is that the level of management skills needed in government to be effective are going up quite fast. And there's a reason for that. Not only Brexit, which is going to call for greater prioritization, le- efficient use of scarcer skills in, in driving a wide range of programs forward. Also, in government as a whole, the easier things have now been done in order to deliver efficiencies in government which is a continuing theme or to move forward in government we're now talking about very large complex change processes the number of transformation projects transformation is now the biggest single category of project going on in government transformation projects are long-term complex change projects driven by using information differently and changing organization structures in response to that. That means you you can get lost very quickly in those change projects if you don't have very good management information and skills in interpreting it, and you don't have people with the right levels of skills to carry those changes through. Now that's not peradventure, that's just basic fact. So the challenge is that running government is getting to be a more Technical and complex business than it used to be. That's why building professionalism is so important. But it's also why the rate of imp- the rate of capability needed on the, the growth in capability needed on the ground is high. Not just doing it. You know this needs to happen quickly. So the growth of professionalism, which I support in the way that that, that is being. Con- conceived of here has to be complemented by bringing expertise onto the ground to take part in decision making and help to drive programs now that is mostly happening by hiring people in from outside to help uh, on a consultancy basis but if you're going to be effective in man- in using that external consultancy you've got to have credible expertise in in house in your home team that can challenge what the consultants are saying. You can't control what consultants are doing properly and use them properly if you don't have people who are credible, authoritative (coughs) leaders who would be recognized outside the civil service as having standing and expertise in their own areas to actually lead the, what I call, the home line of challenge and specification as to what needs to be done. Otherwise, you are actually in the hands of your advisors and that's not really where you want to. You want to be directing your advisors not being in their hands. So, I think there are a lot of challenges about what's happening in the environment and it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough environment. There's another point too, which, I, which, which, which I've already mentioned. The advice needs to be clearly listened to. Maybe not on every occasion. But if you're saying, we want to have this excellent advice, you have to show you're using it, you have to show it's treated with respect, whether it's by having people on boards or by whatever. The, but the most, the most sincere form of endorsement is that it's visibly used in decision-making. There is really no substitute for, 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 for that. And finally, just this comment. You have to walk the talk in another way as well. So I, I was talking uh, two days ago to the, uh, to the board of chairs, non-executive chairs of audit committees across government, and what I had to report was that we'd had a really difficult audit season, buca- largely because the, the finance capability across government had moved backwards. The ability to produce accounts accurately struck me as having <coughs> moved backwards, and they all agreed with that. So. The result, of the, And that is a result, I suspect, of cost reduction measures. Now, I'm not saying that finance or any other specialism should be exempt from those measures, but you do need to understand that if you're talking up the need for professionalisation and improvement, and at the same time people know the reality that's happening in the organisation isn't the same as that, then those messages are not yeah. going to ring true. You have to be consistent. If you're telling people... Commit to a profession, be expert, you're going to have a new role, we're going to build up these capabilities. You have to make sure that the other activities within government are reasonably consistent with that. And that's not always something you see. Quite often you see things that don't necessarily logically combine and, 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 and make sense going forward. So, like to now very quickly summarise. First thing is, walk the talk. Walk the talk. Otherwise, this is going to be difficult. One of the tests of walking the talk will be: Does the de- when it when it cuts when it, when it happens to be inconvenient for depart for departments to make this work across departmental boundaries, will the department heads actually work with the professional heads? Will they make decisions that support what the professional heads have ha- say should happen, or will will we find that that generally doesn't happen? That again is a question of credibility. We need to set the standard, the professional standards high. You can't have standards which are kind of civil service specials. They've got to be really high professional standards, led by people who are credible leaders. And you've got to take decisions. You've got to use the advice. And if you're not going to use the advice, then this is kind of more like show than real reality. But if people show that they're using professional advice then the professionals, as they say, will come. Thank you.
0: you. Amy, thanks very much indeed for that that, um, comment and indeed, as you said, reality check of where we are and these uh, very direct messages about... um, uh, about, about using these skills, as, as you said, I want to go directly to questions. I was going to ask them both what, 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 is, um, what has held this back, uh, but in fact they both answered that very, very directly, as well as crediting the many successes. So let's go. Let's go to some questions uh, on this. Okay, right in, right in the front.
3: Oh,
4: yeah, could you wait for the? Um... Oh, I'm Leslie ann Nash. I'm Director of Public Body Reform in Cabinet Office, reporting directly to John. Um, I'd like to make a statement and then um, ask a question, if I may. One thing about walking the talk, um, we've moved from the era of Francis Maud where Cabinet Office in the centre was very much command and control. John's ethos is very much enabling. So the functional leads really are now trying to work with departments to enable, and I think that that's really going to help to walk, to walk the talk, as you, as you say. The question I'd like to ask is, what's really difficult in government is working across departmental yeah, boundaries. Right. And to what extent do we have to really look at the accounting office, the concept, which is really very much siloed. You know, the permanent secretaries look down mm. and not across. To what extent do we have to start to reform that to actually get that
2: cross-government collaboration to work really effectively?
0: Yeah. Great question, and thank you for that. Amy. do you want to start? Well,
2: well, that might be an idea, but I wouldn't waste your time on it, <laughs> bluntly. I mean, what's the point of having it? De- you know, we can have a debate about whether we should reform the accounting officer concept. It's not going to happen anytime soon so and say, let's talk about how you get accounting officers to feel that they have an obligation to show that this works. And I really, I, I do pay tribute, I'm sorry, I'm sure it's uncomfortable for John to get tribute from me, but I'm going to give him another tribute. <laughs> and say he has been extremely persistent and determined about making this work. But it doesn't always work. And when the child... You know, we, we, you know look at all the difficulties there being getting shared services to work and how people have jump, jumped out of the ship when it happened to suit them. Let's be quite honest. So making this stick is not easy. And I think there's more of... The question is: Do do accounting officers get asked these questions by their colleagues? Do they get asked it by the head of the civil service? I'm sure they get asked it by the chief executive. But do they feel that it's a matter that they should, that they're on their honour, so to speak, to deliver? In all the millions of other things they have to do, is this one? And I think working to try and bring it a priority in their minds and something they really need to just step out of, step out of their Preferred course sometimes to support. I think that's really crucial if this is
1: going to be as effective as we'd like it to be.
0: Thanks. And and Julie, Leslie was also asking about working, you know, across across departments. Yeah. Well, look.
1: um, Sort of two sort of thoughts on that. Um, I mean, first thing on the enabling role. I think that's absolutely crucial. It was crucial these reforms made that step um, to, you know, recognise the reality of what is a very federated system in Whitehall. That's not going to change fundamentally because it's built into how we run a cabinet government. I think on the accounting sort of side, actually, slightly different view to Amius. Um, I don't, uh, I mean, we didn't in this report touch on accountability, but it's kind of sitting there lurking in the background if you read it. Um, And it's quite obvious that there's at least one thing missing from the way we report. If you think about some of the commercial. Uh, issues we've had. They repeat across departments and they repeat across time. Now you could try and tackle that by constantly calling in a succession of permanent secretaries and saying, why has this program failed? And actually, of course, you should call in that succession of permanent secretaries and ask them why those things failed. For all the reasons Amyas has talked about, they need to actually care about these sort of things. But actually you're not going to solve the problem because it's a systemic one. It's pretty obviously systemic from the pattern of failure. Uh, and unless you've got somebody who's also accountable, in this case it would be Gareth Reese williams who would Fundamentally, stand up and say, yes, I'm responsible for making sure that we stop this in a systemic way. I'm not taking responsibility for delivering the individual programs. That remains with departments, with their accounting officers. But I am taking responsibility for have we got the systems and structures in place and the assurance to make sure that the commercial components of delivering that were delivered to a high professional standard. Um, And it is a really interesting question as to where does Parliament hold that to account? We haven't talked about it, we haven't looked at it, and it's certainly something you'd want to think quite a lot about. Uh, Accountability sends everyone's hackles, but good accountability systems help people do their job. At the moment, uh, our accountability system actually tends to get in the way of people doing a good job.
0: We'll come back to that. We're beginning some work on accountability Um, here in the third row.
5: Thank you very much, Tara Alice from McKinsey Centre for Government. Thank you both for your excellent presentations and talks. Love them, mostly because I agree with most of, uh, most of what you said. Um, so, intentionally, I wanted to ask two slightly more challenging questions. One is, what's the actual empirical evidence that professionalization, specialisms, functional capability does work? I mean, it sounds like an obvious idea, it has worked in the private sector, but, you know, what do we know about actually on the ground evidence? And then secondly, we observe that in a lot of kind of large multinational corporations, which by the way are still less complex than Whitehall, um, uh, that actually there isn't a stable solution to the centralization decentralization, but the best corporations centralize stuff that needs to be reinforced and improved and fixed, and then they decentralize it, and then they centralize something else. And it's a continuous kind of dynamic. And interested in your thoughts about how that plays or doesn't play in, in um, the civil service. Julian, do you want to...? Hmm. Uh,
1: yeah, and look, evidence that this works. Um, the, there are at least three bits that play into that. One, we can point to the failures that happen. Now, that's just evidence that we could have done things better. Uh, it doesn't say public sector is worse than anyone else or better than anyone else. It's just, you know, there's a, a whole litany of things that are highlighted there that we know we should do. Um, If you do look at some of the work that we've done on this, there is a really profound difference between the Whitehall sector and actually most other, not just corporate. This is, as you rightly say in the second part of your question, this is really difficult stuff. There's no right answer. It's not that. The chemistry is how do you get the responsibilities and the knowledge into rooms to decide what you're doing. So, as you say, you're reforming. How do we make sure the professional leaders or the specialist leaders in Whitehall other people who are saying, well, this part of our specialism really needs centralization, and we're going to make sure it works, um, as opposed to what has happened far too often in Whitehall. Um, at some point, someone probably in the centre decides we want to centralise something. It doesn't work, but we keep defending the bad performing thing and say departments have to get on with it. It's just a different mindset. Um, the evidence I would love to have, but I don't have, AMIS may have it, be interested to, to hear, but could we connect up some of the Differences in performance that are going on, which are relatively measurable inside different departments or different policy areas, with some of the work I mean you've done at McKinsey at looking at well where are different countries making most progress uh, in delivering outcomes, and at what kind of costs, so where are we seeing efficiency rise? Um, that I think would start to give you some really interesting other correlations, at least between what you're doing inside your Whitehall machine and what, what you actually get for citizens is what people really care about. I'd be gobsmacked if they those didn't exist because it would mean that something was going very wrong in the market based part of our economy. Um, but it's, it's not quite the same in Whitehall. There are differences, but the fundamentals of do you need to know what your value for money is of your expenditure, you need to know yeah. it. And you need to have it, as Amy said, used in decisions, not an abstract piece of knowledge.
2: Mm. Very Can quickly, yes, just say,
1: I mean, is it, 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 let, let, me, let
2: me describe it like this. You can't do... You know, what Whitehall has done in the past is to take out staff numbers in order to economise without understanding what those staff did and then have to fire people to do the things later on. That's not a... I, I'm talking about practical examples we've done reports on. So... You know, if you, don't, if you can't do manpower planning against tasks because you don't know what the capabilities of the people are, how long it takes them to do the work, and what the specification of the tasks are, then you can't run the machine in a very sophisticated way. So, if you don't have the skills, you can't do it. So, the, the empirical evidence, it, that, I think there's a lot of evidence. That all you can do is to do primitive medieval management stuff, you know. And similarly, if you can't cost things properly, it's very difficult to make a decision between one thing and another as to which is better value because you actually don't really know. And similarly, if, you don't, if you're running big change projects and you can't keep track of what you thought would be achieved by when because you don't have good enough management information, strangely enough, you're going to get into a bit of a mess. You can keep on telling everybody what a great success it is but that isn't going to be terribly convincing because you don't have evidence to back it up. So, you know, what you're talking about is what is the imperi- empirical, I- empirical evidence of the fact that you need to manage things properly? Well, strangely enough, that's not specific to the civil service. There is only a limited number of ways of managing complex activities, and strangely, we've come up with a consensus as to what they mostly are. So, it'd be, that's you know, my aspirations for public sector are quite straightforward I'd like them to be able to use the appropriate not every technique but the appropriate techniques when they're doing things which are also have been traveled by the private sector
0: thank you we might come back to the parallels of the private sector
2: later but Amy you run a department which is stuffed full of expertise not just accountants economists there's a wealth of anyway annual reportage is that fact itself an explanation of the critique of uh, lack of professionalism in Whitehall? Why aren't you embraced? Why isn't every report of the NEOs treated as a document stuffed full of evidence
1: for improvement? Now, okay, there has to be some constitutional friction between the legislature and the executive. Nonetheless, the fact that NEO reports are sometimes, sometimes willfully ignored by departments makes the point.
0: And would you, for the record, like to give your name? And Sorry,
2: t- David Walker, Guardian Public. Okay. Well, I was, I've gone through life wondering why I wasn't embraced, and I've given up... <laughs> <laughs> I've given up worrying about it now, David. But, you know, the answer to this is, inter- interestingly, something like 80% of our recommendations are agreed by the departments concerned, and most of our reports are agreed as well by the departments concerned. We don't write them in a vacuum. We write them, we, we spend time talking to the departments about what we're going to say. We present them, even before we've written the report, we present our preliminary findings these days to um, sex. We discuss with them what we're going to say. And largely speaking, you know, contrary to public belief, we agree with them. So then the question is, do they get carried out? Committee of Public Accounts makes recommendations to the Treasury. The Treasury writes back and says we agree. And again, they agree in over 70% of the cases. They agree the recommendations. So then it's a question of: Are they? Is the civil service able to carry out these changes? Do they? Do they result in systemic change? And the answer is: Some do, because we follow up. Some do. But is the rate of change fast enough? to meet the requirements of government today. And what I've said to you is, there's a very big wave going up the beach, and the ability of government to change when it's populated at the top by people who don't have the skills we're talking about, generally speaking, you know, so just any, any well-established organisation is run by people who've been in that organisation, they're, you know, they're not mostly specialists at the top, so they probably don't see that you could do it as differently as that. Every, the change is very gradualist. It needs to move faster. So that's what I'd say. But I, again, no, you know, I am, as I said at the beginning, a, a person who's dying to be more embraced.
0: Amy, yeah. can we just say on that point for a second? What... Um, and you, you described it very well. What might be done to uh, help people at the top, as you said, appreciate um, why these skills are needed and, and, and to embrace them more?
2: Well what, well, what we are doing is trying to bring more information and feedback to the public sector as, in other words, to engage with the public sector and try and be more persuasive (coughs) as to what we see across the whole of government. What a lot of people in government ask us for, which we're now doing, is to try and bring them the picture across the whole of government. Because they actually aren't very well informed about what's happening outside their own departments. So, if you can say, look, everybody's got this problem. We see it in everywhere. It particularly applies to you like this. Well, that's helpful, and we're trying to do that. Um, I mean, the other thing I'll say, and not, not to be flattering but true, the issue is what, you, what the civil service is not short of is brain power. What actually happens is a lot, a lot of the time, I think, you've got very bright people sometimes doing jobs which aren't all that fascinating, or tasks that always aren't that fascinating, and therefore they they do have a bit of a tendency to over-elaborate them and to to make them more interesting by thinking of ways of doing them a bit more complicated or that are very, uh, rather heroic. So I'm astonished that very often when there's a change process being thought about in in government, what is picked is the most difficult way of doing it. And that is really not rare. We're going to do this Resounding, earth shaking change rather than we'll just do an incremental, ploddy little change, which is more like what the corporates do. They try and do it gradually because they want to lose money. Whereas in government, there's this desire to do something interesting and exciting, be part of something exciting. I can understand it because you've got a lot of very bright people there. But you need to understand that's a different set of dynamics to what you see in the private sector. Mm
0: -hmm. Julian, do you want to come in on that?
1: We're coming to. uh, Just really briefly, I think, you know. One thing Amius has done from the NAO is that systemic look at the things that uh, lie behind. And actually, I think that helps some of the dynamic when you've got people who are, whose responsibility inside the system is to think about the systemic as well. Just simply talking to paramsex who feel very defensive when something's gone wrong and expecting them to totally embrace that, that's just not what you build into a good system that's driving improvement. Great. Uh, there's
2: one at, uh,
0: at the back, and then I'm coming to the front and side.
6: Hello, um, I'm Holly Ellis, Director of Capability for the DDAT, uh, Digital Data and Technology Profession. So we've got some quite interesting challenges in our profession specifically, so we need to grow fast, uh, but people only stay for a very, very short tenure. So or very, you know, those expertise that we really want, they treat the civil service as part of their career portfolio. They will come for two years and they will leave. So we can do everything we can to bring them in quickly, but it's not going to stop. It's going to keep going. A lot of weight is put on career pathways, which is really important for the emerging talent and bringing them up, and then we become just part of their career portfolio. So I'm, I suppose it's, it's sort of a comment and a question as to whether there is a, a view or a um, sort of a collective agreement that actually Career Pathway is only going to take us so far. They are going to have very minimal value in my profession in particular in retaining... Talent, because of the way the market is moving. You know, the average tenure, in, uh, or the, the maximum tenure, actually, in professional roles, if you take Facebook, some of the tech titans, is two years. You know, and they're recruiting you know, 10,000 people a month. So we are in an entirely different space some professions. The civil service career journey, career pathways, people are coming for specific, interesting jobs in particular professions, not for a very long tenure in the civil service. So I'm just interested in your view on the weighting of career pathways, in different professions, because they have different um, market um, yeah. mm. kind of challenges like this. Mm.
1: Thank you very much
0: indeed for that, Julian.
1: Uh, just briefly, I mean, I think career pathways. Your uh, actual question illustrates the importance of this. Actually, having a a language and a way of having the conversation about, well, what happens with our workforce? What is the realistic career pathway? And you're saying, and I think digital is one of those areas that is so up in the air because we don't know what it's actually going to look like in a few years' time. Uh, We haven't got stable models of how you do it from 20, 30 years ago because everything has moved. Um, If that is the case, then career pathway discussions are about, well, okay, what do we need? What does that imply for our recruitment? if we're only going to retain you for two years, do we talk to you not about your career as though it's a 20, 30 year career in the civil service, do we talk to you about your portfolio, get your experience now, when in your portfolio will be useful to get another emergence in government uh, doing stuff later in your career? It sort of opens up those kind of conversations, also opens up one of the biggest things for digital, I mean, how are we going to get policy to think in a digital way? Uh, Are there career pathways to jump across that divide that might keep people really interested uh, in that space so I think that it, it's a language career pathways it's not a solution and it's the solutions are recruitment people retention development re-recruitment if that's going to be the way the market works
0: thanks hello Do you, um, there's one here on the aisle
3: thank you um, I'm Andrea Ledward I'm from the Cabinet office in the civil service group um, I just want to say uh, Um, Thank you for your presentations because there's an incredible uh, degree of um, resonance and similarity, I think, with a lot of the conversations going on internally. I think, as Leslie anne said, this is certainly um, very strongly overlapping with the mantra, you know, and John's kind of emphasis. But also within particular departments, I've just come from eight years in Department for International Development, where actually the deep professionalism there, both through project delivery, commercial, financial, as well as the policy lens on the health education governance it's very very deeply specialist organization actually and the culture change there over an eight-year period driving up through the whole reshaping organization was very profound so my question for you both really is where's the best practice now Julian you've just come from Monday you spent the day talking about insights so a set of international indicators learning about international experience Amy, so obviously you've looked very widely across government. I mean, where is the best practice? Where is it happening best, both either in pockets of particular projects, particular specialisms, or particular departments? Um, and where are you, and is, it, is it sticking when you see it? Or actually, is it, is it kind of, you know, happening for a very short period and, and then being lost?
2: OK. Well, um, I'm going I'm to say something quite specific. I, I find it really interesting watching how effective John Thompson was in M.O.D. and how he created a space where people were managing against a clear set of concepts as to how to manage and what you're trying to do and what's the acceptable level of risk. And everyone (coughs) fitted in with that. And so the uncertainty and risk on projects and everything got very much... rapidly came under control. For the more or less first time in the industry of the MOD I would say and so there is where someone who is in a leadership position shows that they think these things are important and they want coherent, controlled well managed progress it's remarkable how quickly it can be done but it does require an active, consistent calm leadership to create that environment and if it You know, people people look up and they they interpret the behavior. Anyone who thinks they're in a leadership position and every move they make isn't being watched is kidding themselves. So if you behave that way, you set that style, you show it matters to you, and you create space for people to perform under you, that is the most important enabling thing. And I'm deliberately naming him, and I've already said things about John, because if you understand the importance of these matters, you show that they matter to you, then everyone else is gonna come with you, funnily enough, and if you don't think they matter, and you show they don't matter to you, then strangely, everyone else isn't gonna bother about it, because they're gonna read what you think are important, and that's how they will shape their behavior. We all know that's the reality. Mm
1: -hmm. Great. Just very quickly on that, um, the I mean, I think, picking up on Amius's point, there's still far too much of this which is relatively immature. It's individuals who have driven change um, and not a a system that's automatically requiring individuals to work well. Um, And you mentioned Incise. Um, This is an indicator which we've jointly published with the Vatnik School um, and actually with the Cabinet Office, um, which looks and starts to try and benchmark things internationally. Uh, in how people are performing. Uh, great credit actually to Jeremy Hayward for actually kicking that off and making it happen. And it's revealed some really useful things for the UK. Digital has opened up certain questions about well where do we rank internationally and how are we doing in that and who could we learn from. Um, so I think you know, really important that we start actually getting the data in to, the, to drive this conversation. What makes us work, what, what works better.
0: Thanks. Well, coming to the end we've got a few more questions. Let's take them uh, together. Uh, here at the side and at the back.
1: Thank um, Simon, Judge, Government Finance Function. I think just to comment on the best practice point earlier, I think we're trying to do a lot more to get all of that stuff embedded in L&D programs uh, and getting people to think about that as a, a proper type of learning and development rather than in the finance function going on a course on latest development in international reporting standards, which is relevant to some people but not many, and that will be a big theme of the Leadership Academy which is indeed being launched uh, next month, is doing more of that. Uh, my question was around the sort of cross-functional issue, because there is a bit of a risk, and the report does allude to this, of replacing one set of silos with a set of functional silos, and um, you know, my f- favourite example is you could have finance, commercial, digital, and project management all working perfectly, but that's not able to talk to each other. Uh, how, how do, we, how do mm. we deal with that risk? What are the sort of practical areas we should focus on? Okay, thanks for
0: that. That matrix matrix is exactly what we spent a lot of time internally discussing Uh, and there's one at the back let's take them together
7: Uh, Joe Simpson Leadership Centre I don't disagree with the report, I think it's got some really good findings but I think there are two weaknesses first of which summarised in the title professionalising Whitehall uh, rather than professionalising public service, so it actually sustains a a really slightly odd gap, if I just take as a one illustration uh, I think mo- you know, Simon Stevens has got slightly higher public recognition than Chris Wormald. Uh but the NHS is not Whitehall uh, but fairly important. Second thing is I think you underplay uh, wicked issues. Let's just take the three biggest issues which have been on the press uh, for the last c- few months First we've started the annual countdown to our winter crisis in health and we predicting which week it will tip in. but health services only account for 20% of health outcomes. Okay. So it's not the right policy it, it's a much more complex one. Second one is terrorism. The idea that, that any one single Whitehall department is going to solve it it is a much more complex issue. so we need professionalism but we also need a, a completely different way of working on complex issues.
0: Uh, Thanks. Uh, New silos and um, Whitehall um, versus wider wider
2: government. Very quickly then on um, new silos. Well, the answer is if you do a decent planning process and everybody knows what their part is, then strangely we should be able to work together. And I'm very focused on the importance of high-quality planning. We're actually trying to have planning now. We've got single developmental plans. I think they've still got quite a long way to go get more than to become more than annual but we really need to have medium term planning that we agree on together and we know what our parts and then we, as it comes forward into the year we're actually going to to carry out we know what our parts are going to be what, what's how the specialisms will combine so if you don't plan together then you won't act together is frankly the what, what I would say about that and, and I certainly accept the challenge that uh, the public sector as a whole um, and if you think about Whitehall, you don't think about the effect out there in the, in the country, well, bad luck. You know that's where the MPs are elected by the Funnily enough, and so there's no such thing as an MP is only concerned about Whitehall issues. They're concerned about public sector issues. They're concerned about the issues their constituents are concerned about. Uh, and therefore, I, I completely agree that there has, to, you, you know, we have to have a holistic view right. of that.
1: I'm just very briefly, um, I mean, the planning together is absolutely crucial. It's one of the biggest things. It's not something we looked at in this report, um, but it is absolutely essential. And prioritisation within that planning uh, going forward on the s- silos, I actually think it's much less of a danger if we get this right. Um, it's easy to see when you're delivering a project. You need the project management working with the commercial, working with the legal. It's it, the end goal um, forces you, if you're doing it right, to work together. Um, I mean, on Joe's point about you know, why doesn't that work in something like big policy areas like health when we are obsessed with a winter crisis, um, sort of, I think actually it's one of the structure things that we have where you quite often get departments competing against each other because they don't actually have the same interests. They're competing in a budgetary way for different amounts of money, not necessarily against the outcome. The functional agenda should help you join that up if you've got finance people actually thinking collectively about that, doing their analysis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the final point I just wanted to to touch on, though, was this point about, you know, have we just looked at Whitehall? Um, we have. We hate that. I, I don't like the word, but it's unfortunately useful shorthand um, for the bit of the government that is so interacting with ministers around policy and the design, at least, of big programs, not necessarily the delivery. Um, we, this was specifically looking at that. If you're interested, the Institute's work, of course, goes much more broadly. Um, and next month we'll be producing our next version of Performance Tracker, which will be looking at the performance of a lot of public services, but crucially for us, linking it back to well, what does this say about the decision-making, the planning uh, that's going on inside Whitehall, and how could you improve that to help us get better outcomes? So uh, hopefully we can see you again next month for, uh, for, for the continuation of that debate.
0: All right, we're going to have to stop there. Thank you very much for coming. I mean, I, I can say, as I said at the beginning, in a sense, to be continued, because this is well, an issue we're not going to give up on. Um, as Julian said, uh, Performance Tracker, look out for that next month. It's one of our anchor publications, and we have a batch of uh, inevitably lively events next week, a discussion of inc- public inquiries in the context of Grenfell and in conversations with John Burko and Andrew Ledson Do follow us on that. And thank you very much again, again to you and to our panel.